As said earlier, we will be looking at really a second message which involves the life of the Apostle Paul and the ministry and message of the Apostle. That life is quite a study. We have, of course, in Scripture what we could call the miracle of Paul. Nothing by nature can explain him except the glorious truth that he met the risen Christ that day outside the gates of Damascus, that everything changed for him, that he was given a special teaching by the Lord himself personally, and that he was given great knowledge and understanding. For instance, he calls himself an able minister of the new covenant, he understood the difference between the old covenant that was established with Israel on Sinai and the new covenant that's established with the spiritual Israel, the eternal Israel. It is amazing that he who was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, he who was of the tribe of Benjamin, he who was a zealot for Judaism, became the apostle to the Gentiles and understood of the equality of Jew and Gentile in Christ and of the one holy nation that God was bringing into being, which was his eternal purpose, as he writes in Ephesians chapter 3. Nothing can explain Paul but the actual confrontation of him by the risen, living Christ. But we look into Galatians chapter 6, we read, Verses 12 through 18. As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised, only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the flesh, but the law, but desire to have you circumcised that they may glory in your flesh. But God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision, being a Jew, availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, being a Gentile, but a new creature, a new creation. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them and mercy and upon the Israel of God. From henceforth let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. He bears in his body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Of course, we're informed about many of the persecutions that the Apostle Paul came under. He suffered severely in this world. That suffering began immediately upon his conversion in Damascus, of course, as we know. He was constantly exposed to danger. 
He tells about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, to which we will not particularly turn, but if you'd like to read that passage in your own devotions at some time. Constantly exposed to danger. And the only way that he escaped death was because God delivered him. The Lord had a purpose for him. He could not die until the time came when Nero would order his execution. He suffered mightily. He could say to the Colossian, or to the Corinthians rather, uh, concerning his sufferings and God's grace and mercy and deliverance, who hath delivered us from so great a death and doth deliver, in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. When he writes his final epistle, Second Timothy, in the fourth chapter, he speaks of being delivered and preserved to God's heavenly kingdom. In that epistle, he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, if you want the references. Thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, but the Lord delivered me out of them all. When we walk in God's will, when we know that will, we're immortal until his time. The Lord Jesus, of course, met with him, taught him the gospel directly. He met the risen and living Christ, which nothing else can explain Paul, the apostle. He learned that he was, quote, a chosen vessel. And he would learn what Ananias of Damascus heard and related, that God said to him, I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And his sufferings would come in the majority from the Jews. Of course, they would manipulate and make use of the Roman power when that would be according to their purpose and as they could. But his sufferings would come in the majority from the Jews, whether directly or indirectly. For instance, at Thessalonica, when he was set out on his missionary journey, it was the Jews who, according to Acts chapter 17 and verse 5, set all the city on an uproar. Why so? They would instigate the Roman rulers against Paul and Silas. There would come the words in Acts 17 verse 7, These all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. When after his three widespread journeys to the Gentiles, preaching the gospel of the grace of God and establishing churches in the faith of the Son of God, he would return to Jerusalem, which was his desire to do so. He had a great desire for the salvation of his brethren, 
those who claim to be Christian and know anything of salvation and truth would have the same desire for their kin. He could say in Romans, I could wish myself to be accursed from Christ for my brethren. And so he would go to Jerusalem. He was warned he was going to come into great suffering there. He said, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy in the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. There at Jerusalem, he was falsely accused of bringing a Gentile into the temple, a real no-no. Then a Jewish mob attempted to kill him. Providentially, he was kept from that by being rescued by the commandant of the Roman army. He was stationed at the fortress of Antonia that was adjacent to the temple. Then when he was permitted to speak to the Jews, he spoke from the steps of that fortress of Antonia. The last words he speaks before they stop him, that is the Jews stop him, crying away with such a fellow from the earth, for it is not fit that he should live. Those last words were to relate the purpose of Christ for him. He relates in Acts 22, verse 21, I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles. I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles. This, their Jewish descent, their religious pride, their national exclusivism would not allow that to be born among them. They could not take such a thing. Paul had proclaimed that the promised Christ had come. That in him, as he would preach, when he would go on his missionary journeys, beginning most of the time in the synagogues, opening the Old Testament scriptures to them, showing them from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He preached at Pisidian Antioch, quote, that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again. He proclaimed the risen Christ as the fulfiller of what God promised before as the fulfiller of what God promised to the nation Israel before. And when finally he goes to Rome, after an appeal is made to Caesar, he meets with other Jews. He tells them, for the hope of Israel, I am bound with this chain. His preaching of Christ this was the hope of Israel. Not some reconstituted old covenant nation. That was over and done. He knew it full well. It's amazing. This is a miracle well of understanding given to him. He would preach the gospel that would declare that neither Jew nor Gentile needed come through the law 
to God. They come directly through Christ. Directly to Him. There was no need. There was no need, no necessity, and it was not to be done to try to make Gentiles Jewish proselytes. And though the Jews had to fabricate charges against the apostle as before Festus, he could say neither against the law of Moses, neither against the temple, nor yet against Caesar. Have I offended anything at all? It was rather because he preached that what God had before promised, what Moses, the prophets, the animal sacrifices, the ordinances, the priesthood, what God had before promised to Abraham, to David, to Israel, was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, risen, and reigning. That's why he could say to those in Rome, because that for the hope of Israel I am bound with this chain. This was the reason he suffered persecution from the Jews. So you read in Galatians chapter 5 verse 11. And I brethren if I yet preach circumcision. Why do I yet suffer persecution? Then is the offense of the cross ceased. From Damascus, throughout all eternity, nothing else, only this, will be his glory. But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. The cross so despised, the cross so offensive to the Jews, the cross so ridiculed as folly by the philosophy-loving Greeks and Romans, scoffing that a god could get crucified. But that was the only place of God's glory. That was the only place, rather, of Paul's glory. That should be the only place of the believer's glory. God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. I think it's necessities especially in the day in which we live, to begin by pointing out that when the Apostle Paul uses the word cross here, he's not speaking in a limited sense of the wooden instrument upon which our Lord was crucified. The, Lord was made of, the, the cross was made of wood. But neither its material nor its shape does anything for us of itself to many a cross is an object of superstition like a rabbit's foot 
and that's a sad thing. To many, it becomes rather idolatrous. I'm sure there are those who want to make use of it as a testimony, but I think it's a wrong use. The cross was a piece of wood. You remember when God instructed Moses to lift up the serpent in the wilderness? The brass that it was made of wouldn't save anybody. It was their looking by faith to what God had told them to do, to look to that. But the people took that and made it an object of worship, of veneration, until it so infuriated Moses that he had them destroy it. When Paul speaks of the cross, he means by the cross all that's involved in the suffering, the death, the shed blood of Christ, the Son of God, which was a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greek-speaking Gentiles. The Romans devised it. They didn't despise the cross for the cross, but they ridiculed the one that was worshipped as God being crucified. The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved it is the power of God. But here is a man. Here's a man who, have, who could have gloried in many things. You study the life of Paul, he has all kinds of things he could glory in. He rejects every one of them. And glories only in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was born a Jew of pure stock. He declared himself an Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was brought up in the strictest form of the Jewish religion. He was trained. In the school of Gamaliel, that was the Ivy League school among the Jews. And as he said, he profited in the Jews' religion above many his equals. He was a Jew of the Jews. He was a zealot of the zealots. More than likely, he could have become one of the mo most famous, the foremost rabbis in his day to his nation. He could have gloried in a position that very few could have gloried in. But he didn't. What he did account all of his advantages was less than nothing. All that he acquired in this world, all he attained in this world. He writes to some, they want to glory in the flesh, they want to glory in something they have done or have. He says in Philippians 3, beginning at verse 4, 
I might also glory in the flesh. If any other man thinketh that he might have uh, this occasion to glory in the flesh, he says, I'm more circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless, not guiltless, but blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, by whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. So he writes, God forbid that I should glory. Save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. And when he preached, he's preaching. He knew the philosophies of the day. You can read that in the book of Acts. He was possibly the most highest educated among the Jews. I'm at higher education, he had it. And yet when he preaches the gospel, he declares that he determined to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And it was not, quote, with enticing words of man's wisdom. My, he could have gloried in the uniqueness of his conversion experience. What a conversion he had. Miraculous. No other explanation. An actual confronta confrontation with the living Christ who died, rose again from the dead, called him to preach him. No one before or since has been brought to Christ under the same circumstances as he. And you realize it's very natural, and I use the word natural deliberately. It's very natural to boast in a unique privilege or advantage or gift or some something that has been acquired or attained. Very natural. But the only times, the only times he mentions those unique circumstances is when he's essentially forced to do so. And then it turns to his declaring that God raised Christ from the dead. That he knows the living Christ for this reason. He doesn't even count his life dear unto himself. Should he die? For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. No explanation other than God's miracle of grace in him. He could sooner deny that he, the Apostle Paul, existed than to deny the actual resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But his salvation did not 
consist in his experience, as glorious as it was, but in the realization that the risen Christ was he who had died on that Roman cross. And it was for him. God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. You know, we could bring all kinds of things he could have gloried in. We could spend a whole lot of time just considering the things he could have gloried in. Many other things could be mentioned. Like all the churches he called into existence, or God called into existence, rather, through him. He had a unique experience no one has ever had in the third heaven. <laughs> Heard things that he could not even speak. Not lawful for a man to relay. He was given the abundance of revelation. Oh, you talk about theology, you want to study theology, study Paul's writings. And it was all made known to him personally by Christ. And yet, he refuses to glory in those things. God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. He does write to the Corinthians, and he says to them, I will glory in my infirmities. But it's still all associated with the power of Christ upon him to the preaching of the gospel. Not something for himself. The preaching of Christ. The preaching of Christ crucified. Risen. Reigning. And even when he reproves some for boasting in themselves. Thinking of themselves more highly than they ought to tells them that they are to glory only in the Lord. That was only after he reminded them that they were called through the preaching of Christ crucified. You see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. We weren't called in the main from the rich and famous, but from the common people. The majority of God's chosen come from them. God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. 
But then, you know, we could wonder, why does he say his only place of glory is in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ? Why not in the divine incarnation? Or in the resurrection? He's one of the most empirical proofs of the resurrection in Scripture. Paul. Knowing the risen Christ. Or why not the present reign of Christ? His glory now. With all power in heaven and in earth. The King of kings and Lord of lords. Or why not the second appearing? Yet he says, God forbid that I should glory. Save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. By whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. He could have gloried in the incarnation. After all, our Lord Jesus Christ is the Son of God by nature. The Son of the living God. As in Micah 5, 2, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. He is eternal in his essential being. He's eternal. He's the divine agent in creation. He's the reason for the sun, the moon, the stars, the earth, the angels, things seen, things unseen. He was there breathing breath into Adam. Giving him life. Or else he would have remained but a lump of clay. Life comes from God. No man can create life. By him were all things created, which are in heaven and which are on earth. By him. Things seen, things unseen. As Paul would write in Colossians 1.16. And when the world is no more, and it has a limitation, it's going to come to an end as we know it. And when the world is no more, he's the one who will bring it to an end. He's the one who will do that. Quoting from the second psalm, or not the second psalm, what psalm was it? Well, quoting from the psalms. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, Thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest. They all shall wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up. And they shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. That was a reference to Christ, I think, in Psalm 102. That's quoted from. He is Alpha and Omega. He was there when the world was created because he created it. He always was, is, shall be. It's he 
It's he who, by an incredible divine incarnation, was enfolded in the arms of a young virgin to who the angel said, That holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And his apostles, his apostles that walked with him, heard him, witnessed his miracles, felt his love knew the wonders of his grace were given to know who he is they wouldn't leave him though all the world would he feeds 5,000 they come the next day many of them not because they want him they want free bread they want what he could do for them and when he makes known, I am the bread of life. And he says, you can't come to me unless God draws you. And the multitude goes away, except for his apostles. Maybe wondering what happened to this vast multitude. What happened to this crowd? Maybe bewildered looking over the shimmering waters of the Galilean lake will you also go away is the Lord's word to them Lord to whom shall we go thou hast the words of eternal life and we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. They wouldn't deny him, though all the world would. Yet Paul declares, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. Do know that without the cross, purposed of God from all eternity, there would not have been a divine incarnation. There would not have then been a fully attested resurrection from the dead. There wouldn't be a present reign of Christ at the right hand of the majesty on high. And there wouldn't be a second appearing at which time we who are in him shall forever be with the Lord. The cross was the center of all God's preaching, or all Paul's preaching and teaching. The cross was central in his preaching. The cross is the reason why he suffered so at the hands of the Jews. And why he understood that there was only one true and eternal Israel of God. And it was not under the old covenant state, it was under the new covenant condition. 
the cross revealed something about God. You want to learn about God? You want to know something glorious about God? The cross revealed something about God. Something about the very nature of the living God. That could be known no other way. In its breadth and length and depth and height. To the natural man. It looked like degradation. To the Jews it was a matter of scoffing. If thou be the Christ, come down from the cross. We'll believe you if we can see this. Degradation. Weakness. Humiliation. Jesus of Nazareth. Dying a death that was reserved for criminal slaves. And yet Paul declares here that this is in truth the power of God. And the wisdom of God. Behind it. Causing it, securing all of its victory, all of its success, because it will never lose. Was a love. That's incredible. Amazing. We couldn't come up with enough descriptive terms to describe it. And when men come to realize what God did in the cross, and they come to realize he did it for them, it conquers them. They are conquered by grace, wondrous grace. They are conquered by a love that's astounding. The love of God nailed Christ to the cross. For a people chosen out of every kindred, tribe, tongue on the face of the earth. It conquers men immediately when they truly come to know it. That he died in my place. He took my punishment. He took my death. He bore all of the wrath of God that belongs against me. For which I should have perished forever in hell. And wanted me for his own. Amazing love. Amazing love. Amazing grace. In this was manifested the love of God toward us. Because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Here in his love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The one sacrifice accepted by God to forever take away our sins. 
to remove the whole barrier between him and us and to draw us to himself. And the love of the Son, Paul could say who loved me and gave himself for me, the love of the Son is the same love of the Father. It's the love of God. Because the divine nature is not capable of being divided. The Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father. The same love. When we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Divine justice. Is never relaxed. God is just, holy, infinitely so. The righteous judge. Men shall stand before God. That's a solemn thing. Law and conscience condemn. When our Lord kept the law perfectly. Perfectly. And then died the death that we should have died. Justice is satisfied. Requires no more. Not relaxed. Satisfied. In the death of Christ. But it's God's love that satisfied his justice. For all who are called to refuse the thought of works or merit or something in themselves of worthiness. And to look to, believe, trust only the lamb for sinners slain. And what a wondrous, glorious reality that God then, in the great exchange, our sins for Christ's righteousness, gives us the very righteousness of his Son, accounts it as ours, puts it into our account, it becomes ours through the wondrous grace of God by faith only. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's preaching. Paul's preaching to both Jew and Gentiles that all who believe God, who trust only in Christ, who believe that God raised him from the dead after he died a substitutionary death for sinners, in their heart, in reality, may come directly to God apart from the law, 
by the cross. Not becoming Jews by religion. Directly to him. With nothing but an empty hand. What a glorious gospel. That's what got Paul in big trouble. That's what got him into huge trouble. The Jews who could not accept a suffering Messiah stumbled at the cross. But they were infuriated at the law-free gospel Paul preached. That is, that God accepted Jew or Gentile apart from the law only on the basis of Jesus Christ and Him crucified and through faith in Him only. That's what got Him in big trouble. So you read of his ministry when he carries that gospel and he establishes churches and the adversaries on his heel with his ministers to come and distort that gospel. Paul battling many of those churches, like Galatia, the most Gentile of the Gentile churches, was with those who we term Judaizers. They didn't deny that Jesus was the Christ. They denied that he was enough and his cross enough for salvation. That there had to be a human contribution. That there had to be one being circumcised and keeping the law, essentially becoming a Jewish proselyte as well. If Gentiles were to be saved, they thought, they must also be circumcised and keep the law. What did that do? That would remove the offense of the cross. That salvation was only by the death of Christ. And had there been this addition, it would have conciliated the Jews. This thought of marriage in whatever form, however small, this thought of merit is so ingrained in man by nature that false or modified gospels adding some form of human work or cooperation to the cross in order to be saved gains ground very easily among men. You have to do something physical. Don't be baptized. Baptizing, baptism is important, but there's never been in a soul anywhere justified through baptism. Well, we got to come to the altar. What altar? My dear friend Roger Lackey had a radio program one time. He's preaching the gospel. Talking about so-called altar calls in churches. 
he began explaining what the altar was in the Old Testament, what it looked like. And, you know, I've never seen an altar like that with grates and horns coming out of it. And so, placed you poured the blood in the water. But we have an altar. We have an altar. And that altar is Jesus Christ crucified. He's our altar. He's our all. No amount of human effort whatsoever added to Christ for salvation. You see, the kingdom of God is a kingdom of pure grace. Pure gift of grace. Incredible sovereign love behind it. And even the faith that refuses merit and looks only to Christ crucified the sinner's only hope. That's a gift of grace. It is a satanic work to change the gospel by adding some form of human contribution. It's the reason Paul pointed out that those who preach such are actually Satan's emissaries. Such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose ends shall be according to their works. But how the saint loves the gospel of the grace of God the gospel that declares Christ as the sinner's only substitute. The cross as the sinner's only hope. And the salvation is absolutely free to all who by grace, sovereign grace, hold out an empty hand to receive it. The woman at the well of Samaria, she wanted to argue about theology, about which was the right place to worship. The Samaritans had their methods they went through, as well as the Jews. And the Lord looked to her and says, If thou knewest the gift of God, And who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink? Thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. Pure gift of grace. Then briefly, when the Apostle Paul speaks of being crucified to the world, by the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking about everything outwardly, including the worldly form of Israel. When he writes in verses 15 and 16, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creature and as many 
as walk according to this rule. Peace be on them and mercy and upon the Israel of God. The old covenant Israel is over. It's over and done. Called in the scripture Israel after the flesh. It's forever rendered obsolete by the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Never again will it be a covenant nation, ever. The Lord Jesus broke down. He broke down the middle wall of partition between Jew and Gentile. He broke it down. He's not going to build it again. The Israel of promise has fully arrived under a new covenant. And this new covenant, and this new covenant Israel, which is the eternal Israel of God, is where there is both Jew, Gentile, male, female, rich, poor, black, white, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither bond nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And even Paul knows that to try to re-erect what had been torn down forever would be to sin against the very purpose of God and that purpose is fulfilled in Jesus Christ and him crucified and so Paul in that regard and in that context wrote in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 18 for if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. And never shall that old covenant estate return, ever. We're under a wondrous, eternal new covenant. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them and mercy and upon the Israel of God. So what's the saints' worship now and for all of eternity? Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive riches, power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. As far as our glory, God forbid that I should glory. Save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. See if we can find in him amazing love. And let's sing that.
amazing love. At the conclusion of singing that hymn, we'll go off the live stream. Seven thirty-one. Let's stand and sing seven thirty-one.
Oh, yeah. 